I'm home for the summer, so decided to get an easy summer job. I wanted something easy with flexible hours that I could come back and forth to on weekends and holidays, or if I needed some extra cash. I saw an ad for a tour guide, urgently hiring. The application is sparse, basically asking if I have any medical issues, nothing about past employment, references, or where you even live. I complete the application and my finger hovers over the submit button. I'm not sure why, but something is making me hesitate. I tell myself, you don't have to take the job. Just apply and see what happens. I hit submit and receive an email confirmation, as well as a start date. That was fast and honestly, a little sketchy. I didn't even take the time to look up the company I would be a tour guide for. I'd always heard the name of Waverly Hills Sanatorium, but just thought it was a museum type of old hospital. I call the number for Waverly Hills to make sure I'm reading the email correctly. It rings a couple of times before hearing a faint click. Hello? A small whisper. Hi, my name is Sam. I applied for the tour guide position, and I already have a start date on Friday this week. Could I talk with someone about that to make sure it's not a mistake? No mistake. The voice whispers back. Oh, okay. Could I have your name for my information? There's some ambient noise on the other end of the phone, but the voice does not speak again. There's a loud screech, and then the line goes dead. Well, that doesn't make me feel any better. Deciding to push the bad thoughts out of my mind, I start putting together my resume and plan my outfit for Friday. I only have today and tomorrow to get ready. I would have liked at least a week to relax, but money is money. Friday morning arrives. It's about 45 minute drive to the sanatorium. Thursday night, I realized that there wasn't even a time listed on the email they sent. I've tried calling numerous times, but the line always rings busy. The more I look at the email, the stranger it seems. I think eight is probably a good time to get there. With no other available information, I hit the road and practice answering common questions that people ask during interviews or first days. I turn onto a winding road, follow it for a little while. Trees canvas the road, tall and overarching, making everything have a green tent overhead. It's definitely darker on this road than the rest of the drive. My music suddenly stops and the GPS freezes. It's stuck on half a mile before a left turn. I try resetting the app, but realize my phone has no service. Why is there never service when you desperately need it? I see an old building to my left through some trees. I eventually come to a stop. Following what the next directions were, I turn left. There's a makeshift parking lot in what looks to be in front of a very old building, but there are no cars. I follow the road and basically go all around the building, but nothing. I'm starting to circle again to see if I missed anything, and just beyond the tree line, I see what looks to be a workshop, a car sitting out front. I park somewhat near the car, leery to get too close. The place honestly looks abandoned. I check my phone again, no service. I get out of the car, walking over to the other car. 
The closer I walk, I'm realizing how old and beat up this car is. The tires need air, and it's covered in dirt and leaves. A surge of annoyance runs through me. This is going to end up being a huge waste of time and gas. I think back to the phone call. No mistake. Was that the person that sent the email? How would they know? I knock on the door of the workshop. No sounds are coming from in it. I yell, Hello? With no response, I cut my losses here and get back in the car. I drive back to the front of the building. Someone has to be here. I park, get out, and walk straight up to the front door. I knock on the big wooden doors, giving some time before seeing if I can peer inside the windows. As I'm walking off the porch, I hear the door squeak open behind me. The door is just cracked. I walk back up to it and say, hello? No response. I place my palm on the door, slowly pushing it all the way open. A black abyss looking back at me. The only light coming from the sunlight through the door. I step into the entrance. It's musty and the air smells stale. It's eerily quiet. I again say, Hello? But softer this time. Out of the darkness, I hear a whisper. Hello? I can't really tell where it's coming from. I step further into the entrance. I'm Sam. Sorry, I can't see you if you're in here. Am I at the right place for the tour guide? There's no immediate response. I hear the sound of a door opening echoing off the walls of the large room, but see no one. I turn the flashlight on my phone on and continue walking in, shining the light on the walls. I see what I thought was wallpaper in the low light is actually graffiti. Pieces of the wall curling up as layers of old curls settle on the floor. The building is not what I was expecting. I thought there would be some upkeep. It didn't look that bad from the outside. I brave further, the annoyance giving me some adrenaline to keep moving forward. I've already wasted so much time driving out and looking for someone. I'm not even sure if I want this job at this point. But they need to be told how rude this entire process has been. I walk towards where I hear the door open and find a staircase. I can only go up, so I begin climbing. Hello? I hear a whispered voice. This way. It leads me to a room right at the top of the staircase. As I'm walking in, my foot hits on something soft. I'm scared to look down, not sure what it could possibly be. As I shine my light on it, it's a small black ball, soft looking, not made of rubber. I kick it out of the way and it rolls down the hall, out of view. I walk into the room the whisper came from. I'm on edge. This has gotten worse and worse since arriving. What the heck is going on? I'm looking around the room with a flashlight when my light runs over someone. 
I move the flashlight back to where they were standing, and it's just a blank spot. I'm trying to make certain that I actually saw someone. All of a sudden, I feel a soft bump on the back of my foot, the black ball resting on the floor. I look into the doorway, back into the darkened hallway, and start walking over to it. The door slams in my face. I reach for the handle, but it's missing. There's no way to open the door. I'm pounding on it, begging to be let out, tears running down my face as I scream for help. I push one last time hard on the door, and it bursts open. I clatter to the ground, but quickly gather myself, getting up and running down the stairs. It's getting brighter and brighter as I get closer to the front door. I can turn around and see just blackness consuming everything behind me. I make it to the threshold, running as fast as I can, and collide with something in extreme impact. I'm falling backwards, but something catches and centers me. I'm still screaming help and clawing to get away from whatever is now holding me. I hear, it's okay, it's okay, try to calm down. Not a whisper. I stop moving and examine what's holding me. Two thin arms and pink sleeves. I slowly wiggle out of the embrace and turn around. A woman, holding her hands out. Are you okay? She asks. I catch my breath and tell her I think so. Her face then goes stern. So, what exactly are you doing here? I give her a questioning look. My name is Sam. I'm here for the tour guide position. The woman doesn't move. You must be mistaken. There's no tour guide position here. She crosses her arms and begins looking at me, into the dark building, too. I tell her I submitted an application, got an email to come on Friday for my first day. I reach for my phone to show her, but I still don't have any service. I explained I tried to call and spoke to someone and said that it wasn't a mistake. Finally, she goes, Hun, I'm the only one who gives tours. We didn't post that position. I'm not sure who you spoke with, but I'm sorry. There's no job. I feel defeated and confused. I apologize for my outburst and get back into my car. As I'm driving away, the music in my car starts blaring, scaring me. I turn the volume down, seeing I have service again. I type my address into the GPS, and right before I hit go, a phone call comes through unknown caller on my screen. I answer it. Hello? I hear strange ambient sound on the other end. I just wanted to play with you comes out in a whisper from the other end, before a loud screech in the line dropping. I stare at the screen. It's back to the GPS. I hit go and begin to place the phone on my passenger seat when I see it. A small black ball. Hey guys, it's Holly and Brittany, two sisters who take a deep dive into the history of the world's most haunted places and paranormal happenings. This is Sister Stitious, and it's about to get spooky.
The tuberculosis epidemic spread within the United States throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, but certain states suffered more than others. The rise of tuberculosis cases in Kentucky reached plague-like proportions, doubling the number of cases from years earlier. In Louisville specifically, it was estimated that one in every eight infected would die. Tuberculosis was first documented 3,000 years ago, but it is believed to have been around since the beginning of time. Originally thought to be contracted through genetics, it wouldn't be until the late 1800s that Robert Cohn discovered how contagious this disease was. From then on, good hygiene was pushed and ways to prevent the spread were shared. There have been many names for tuberculosis in the past, mainly referring to the physical appearance it causes in the infected. Consumption, one of the more notable names, was given because the disease consumes the body of the sick, leaving them extremely thin and pale. Since white blood cells cannot destroy the disease, it was also called the white plague. Droplets from coughing, sneezing, or spitting commonly spread tuberculosis. In unsanitary living conditions in the past, it was much easier to contract the illness. For most people, the first signs of sickness are very similar to the common cold, and back then these initial symptoms were usually shrugged off, giving the disease more exposure. Without a cure, it was common that the effects got worse, creating a cough, fever, night sweats, and large decrease in appetite. As the coughing continued, extreme pain in the chest would be accompanied by the regurgitation of blood and tissue from the dissolving lungs. Eventually, lumps and holes would form, and in some cases, they would land on major arteries causing catastrophic bleeding and death. Once individuals showed extreme paleness of the skin and were coughing up blood, they had progressed substantially, leaving many who reached this point with no hope of survival. TB doesn't always just affect the lungs. In more advanced cases, it can move to other organs, similar to the way cancer spreads. If one contracted it in the brain or spinal cord, coma and complete paralysis of the lower body could occur. As it became more apparent how contagious the disease was, quarantining when diagnosed was expected, but that did cause repercussions for poor and working class families. Those who relied on a paycheck to survive would often deny their illness and continue going out in public to work. This only continued the spread of the disease. It wouldn't be until sanatoriums opened, offering various treatment options and keeping the sick away from the healthy that many believed tuberculosis could finally be handled. While sanatoriums helped save countless amount of lives, it wouldn't be until streptomycin was introduced that cases drastically started to decrease. While tuberculosis isn't prevalent in the United States today, it is still the 13th leading cause of death worldwide and killed 1.2 million people in 2020. In total, tuberculosis has taken the lives of over 1 billion people. Now, since every good ghost story starts at the beginning, that is where we're going to begin. In 1883, land in southern Louisville, Kentucky was purchased by Major Thomas H. Hayes to build his family home. The land he purchased was situated on a hill, secluded from other locals in the area. Since there was no school nearby for his daughters to attend, Hayes decided to build a one-room schoolhouse nearby. He hired a woman named Lizzie Harris to be the teacher for the small school. Since Lizzie happened to love the Waverly novels by William Scott, she decided to name the schoolhouse Waverly School. Liking the name so much, Major Hayes decided that he would name his property Waverly Hill. 
Only a few decades later, Jefferson County would experience a major rise in tuberculosis cases. With the Ohio River and wetlands nearby, it created a perfect breeding ground for the tuberculosis bacteria to grow, which resulted in a TB outbreak around the area. It got so bad for the community that they needed somewhere to care and house those who contracted TB, away from other people, since it was extremely contagious. The Board of Tuberculosis Hospital bought Major Hayes land for their new hospital because wind on the hill produced perfect airflow, which was believed to help treat tuberculosis. Originally, a two-story wooden hospital was open that held 40 patients with two open-air pavilions for less severe cases. Many of the cases that were more extreme were treated at the city hospital, but with a new city hospital being built, they decided they were no longer going to accept tuberculosis patients. So, in 1912, another TB building was added on Waverly Hill that held 40 more beds for the more advanced cases. Two years later, a children's pavilion was created to not only treat and care for sick children, but to house the children of sick parents who were patients at Waverly Hill. With all the different buildings and beds added together, the original Waverly Hill Sanatorium held around 130 patients. For the next 10 years, repairs on the building were more constant since it was built from wood. And with the rise of TB cases, many people were turned away from treatment at Waverly due to lack of space. In 1922, the president of the Jefferson County Board of Tuberculosis Hospital officially announced that Waverly was overcrowded with 200 patients in the main building. Remember, this structure was only designed to hold 40. Patients were crammed like sardines, which made conditions unbearable, unsanitary, and ultimately unsafe. Individuals would be placed on open-air porches all year round, no matter how cold or hot the temperatures got. Not only were the conditions intolerable inside the hospital, they were also intolerable for the other 2,500 ill residents with no access to care. In 1923, the public voted to expand and rebuild Waverly Hills and promised room for 435 patient beds. On October 17, 1926, the grand five-story Tudor-style building officially opened to patients, giving many people in Jefferson County hope for survival. Once the new Waverly Hills Sanatorium opened, it was deemed as one of the best TB hospitals at the time, bringing monumental attention as many hoped they would soon secure a spot in such a top-notch facility. The five-floor structure was an impressive site, designed and positioned with open-air porches known as solariums or sunrooms so that a breeze constantly moved through the building. If you were to tour the building during its time of operation, you would find that the first floor held the lobby, solarium, patient rooms, offices, medical labs, x-ray combined darkroom, a nurse's station, salon, barbershop, dentist, the tunnel, also known as the body chute, which we will cover in depth later, a library, cold room for storage, morgue, and the maintenance office. Moving up to the second floor, you would find the kitchen, a dining room that held over 400 people, surgery room, sun porch, chapel, patient rooms, and two nurse stations. The third and fourth floors were similar, containing patient rooms, sun porches, two nurses stations, and they both included an operation room, one being for minor surgeries and the other for major. The fifth floor was reserved for the more severe cases, especially those whose TB affected the brain. The fifth floor also gave access to the roof, which was used by children to play, as well as heliotherapy for patients whose TB affected their bones. 
Since segregation was still legal, black tuberculosis patients were given their own smaller facility. Their building had most of the same features and amenities as the main building, including sun porches and a gift shop. And while sources have stated that they received the same quality of care, their death rate was exceptionally higher. One of the main reasons for this was that their facility was often overcrowded and they needed more space. With the push from the community, an addition was added in the 1940s that made space for almost 100 more beds. Black patients were also only treated by black doctors, many of whom were the first to learn how to treat TB. One of the first black physicians at Waverly was Dr. Jesse Burnett Bell, who was sent to the sanatorium after contracting the disease. During his recovery, he decided he wanted to focus on public access to care. Over time, he worked with the Health Department of Louisville to improve the availability of care for the black community. In 1946, he became the medical director of the Red Cross Hospital, the only accredited private hospital in Kentucky where African-American physicians could take their patients. Until his death, he continued to work to provide ways for Kentucky minorities to receive the care they deserved. During a patient's stay at Waverly, it was expected for them to rest most of the day. They would be wheeled out of their rooms to the sun porch for many hours since the fresh air was believed to be vital to recovery. The weather often did not affect time spent in the sunroom, and during the colder months, patients would be covered in mountains of blankets to keep warm. Photos that were taken during Waverly's operation shows patients sitting near windows covered in their blankets with snow collecting at their feet. Rest was also believed to be vital, making entertainment sparse. Most days, patients were only allowed to read pre-approved books, write letters, and listen to the radio. But Waverly did offer different activities from time to time, such as Wednesday movie nights, prayer meetings, church services, and crafts. Since patients usually stayed at Waverly for long periods of time, commonly over a year, the sanatorium provided a beauty parlor and general store. Programs that gave patients options to learn new skills were introduced so that those who left Waverly were able to acquire jobs on the outside. Even though rest was often required of patients, they were humans after all. Many would sneak out of their rooms at night to engage in secret meetings and unauthorized activities. In an effort to make some days exciting, Santa would come annually to give the children a sleigh ride and egg hunts were done every year on Easter. Since it was important to keep those infected with tuberculosis out of the public, Waverly Hills became its own self-sufficient community, containing a post office and acquiring its own zip code. Fruits and vegetables were grown on site and meat was raised for slaughter. Even though many of these patients spent much of their time controlled and confined, numerous survivors are thankful for their experience, believing that the staff was doing what was needed to help them. Just like the patients, the staff had strict guidelines and were expected to live on site considering they were constantly exposed to the disease. Dormitories were built for healthcare providers and doctors moved into some of the homes on the property with their families. Unfortunately, many staff wound up getting sick and becoming patients of Waverly, sitting side by side with those that they had previously cared for. Residents from all over Kentucky and nearby states heard of the many different treatments offered. Many people migrated to Louisville in hopes that they could gain admittance into Waverly. As the TB cases continued to grow, more and more people needed access to care. 
Applicants came from nearly 20 states and over 60 Kentucky counties, which made the approval process extremely difficult. In 1929, admittance would only be granted to lifelong residents of Jefferson County. However, many migrants would lie, causing applicants to be heavily investigated. If it was discovered that a patient had been lying, they would be kicked out of Waverly as there was no leniency to this rule. By 1933, there were around 500 patients and over 100 on waiting lists to be admitted. The treatment options provided at Waverly made many people hopeful about the recovery. Basic treatments were offered first, but more intrusive options were given for the more advanced cases. Some of the basic treatments were as followed. First, good nutrition. Since a good, healthy diet was believed to help the healing process, patients were expected to eat every meal even though their appetite was affected by the disease. As easy as eating sounds, the amount required was very hard for some to manage. 2,100 meals were prepared daily, giving each patient three meals every day. Second, heliotherapy, also known as light therapy or phototherapy, was used. Since sunlight kills some bacteria and improves circulation, this therapy was given to all patients but it was given more regularly to those who developed TB in their bones, joints, skin, and eyes. Next, to treat specific organs and part of the body, some lamps would be used directly on these areas, most commonly being the lungs. Along with these therapies, postural rest was used to give the affected side of the body more rest. A common therapy still used today is cupping, but when it was used in the treatment of TB, a small incision would be made on the body and a warm cup was applied to the area, causing pus to be released through the incision. A more invasive but painless treatment was pneumothorax. This is when doctors would inject gas between the diseased lung and the ribs to help relax the lung during breathing. Normally, after the injection, the lung would heal in a few days and return to its normal size. If the case was advanced enough, another treatment would have to be used. Normally, this procedure was easy and painless and could be done while a patient was in their own bed, but it didn't go without any risks. Sometimes the needle would accidentally break inside the patient while being inserted, and if a doctor accidentally punctured a pulmonary vein, an air bubble could enter the bloodstream, causing sudden death. Other times, instead of air being inserted between the lungs and ribs, doctors would use other substances leading to suffering from immense pain, hallucinations, and fever. If none of these treatment options worked for the patient, a phrenic nerve crush, which required surgery, was suggested. Doctors would remove or freeze the phrenic nerve, which keeps the diaphragm from functioning, giving the lung time to heal. If freezing occurred, the nerve wouldn't be removed. It would only temporarily lose function for a few months, gaining movement slowly over time. When the nerve was actually cut, the diaphragm would permanently be affected, but it was possible to reverse the surgery once the patient healed. Other surgical treatments included lobectomy, which is a surgery that removes part of the diseased lung. In more severe cases, the lining of the lung along with the chest wall and diaphragm would be removed. Pneumonectomy, which was only used in dire circumstances to remove the diseased lung, was mainly performed to reduce pain in the patient. The most severe surgery only used as a last resort was thoracoplasty, a major surgery that removed a few of the patient's ribs, forcing the lung to rest. This method was extremely painful and risky. 95% of patients who underwent this surgery died and left those who survived disfigured.
Those who would go through surgery were not allowed to leave before nine months post-op, causing patients to stay at Waverly for a couple years. However, in 1956, outpatient care became available, so patients were allowed to go home and take their medications instead of having to stay at the sanatorium. In 1942, Waverly was forced to join a merger, which caused its funding to drastically decrease. Instead of Waverly receiving money directly, it was put into a fund that was distributed by the State Board of Health, who could use the funding however they pleased. Over the years, less individuals needed care after streptomycin was introduced as a cure. After 50 years, Waverly Hills Sanatorium officially closed their doors, and while an exact number is unknown, sources have shared that anywhere from 6,000 to 63,000 deaths occurred within the walls of Waverly Hills. After the closing of the sanatorium, a senior care center named Waverly Hills Geriatric Center would use the building and officially opened in 1962 but the name would change to Woodhaven Medical Services in 1970, and care was extended to patients as young as 18. Unfortunately, in the 1980s, complaints started coming in about Woodhaven patients being neglected. An 85-year-old resident died by falling off a loading dock, leading to an unannounced visit from the State Director of Licensing, who found 47 violations, including urine all over the floor, feces on various surfaces, roaches crawling on patients. It was also discovered that patients were locked in their rooms and some were even tied to chairs or beds with sheets. Woodhaven would permanently close its doors January 1982. Following the closing, the building would sit abandoned for 20 years and resulted in vandals trespassing and trashing the inside. Charles Severs, who worked as a physician at Woodhaven, bought the property and had plans to turn it into a retirement community. But with renovations being too expensive, it was sold in 1998 to a man named Bob Alberhasky. Alberhasky belonged to the Chrysler Redeemer Foundation. He wanted to use the building as a Christian spiritual center and planned on using the roof to build a 150-foot statue of Jesus, similar to the 120-foot tall Chrysler Redeemer statue in Brazil. Using donations to fund his project, he needed to raise more than $10 million, but after the first year, he was only able to raise around 3000 so the project was abandoned. Eventually, the property would catch the eye of a son from a former worker and patient at Waverly Hills. As Charles Mattingly and his father made their way through the abandoned building, the destruction was hard to take in. Knowing how the place looked and felt during Waverly's operation made Mattingly's father extremely emotional, and Charles felt determined to do something about the property. In 2001, Tina and Charlie Mattingly bought the property vowing to restore it. Since the building was abandoned for many years, vandals came in and out, wreaking havoc on the inside. Many of the doors and windows are gone, paint inside the structure is peeling, and graffiti lines almost every wall of the old hospital. The Mattingleys decided to host tours through the building to raise the money they needed for repairs, and to this day, they still use every cent from their guests for restorative work. While the destruction on the inside is evident, so is the ability to picture what the building was like when it was used for patients. Since the structure of the building is so durable, each space mapped out from the original facility still exists and can be seen easily through tours. 
Even when stepping into the open-air sunrooms, it's easy to picture patients using the space as they did from 1926 to 1961. While many people come to see Waverly Hills from a historical standpoint, its popularity continues to grow with the claims that the building holds life after death. Many visitors who have toured the property have witnessed unimaginable evidence of the paranormal. Numerous guests have been able to document their experiences through video and photos. The following are some of the paranormal phenomenon many have claimed to witness. Many of the paranormal experiences aware to us can be encountered at Waverly Hills. A plethora of photographs, EVP, videos, and other forms of documentation provide evidence that these stories are likely not being made up. Shadow people are extremely common on the second, third, and fourth floors. Not only have they been witnessed as a singular being, they have also been witnessed in large groups. One woman stated that she could see many of these shadow figures walking around, passing each other, as if they were all synchronized in their pacing. Paranormal investigators have seen plenty of these shadow figures and even conducted an experiment with lasers to see if they carry any tangible substance. During their investigation, when spotting the shadow figure, they would shine a laser into the shadow figure, and instead of the laser going through the entity, like one would expect, the light would stop on the figure, much like it does when shined on a human. They were even able to catch some of the entities getting closer to them as the light would bounce back closer to the investigators. There has even been video evidence captured of this occurring. While many of the shadow figures are more or less just creepy to encounter, a few people have been injured by these beings. Bits of concrete from the walls and full bricks have been chucked across the hallway at the heads of non-suspecting visitors, only to be told that they mysteriously came out of the darkness. If something isn't happy you're there, it clearly has no problem letting you know. Since the hospital also treated children, it shouldn't be surprising that many have witnessed some type of experience from ghost children. One of the most common experiences is with a young boy who loves to play with a black leather ball. This black leather ball has been spotted rolling back and forth across the hallways, into rooms, and out of rooms, all on its own. Visitors have brought their own balls to entice some of the spirit children to play with them. Just like the black leather ball, these two will roll in unnatural ways without sight of anything moving or manipulating them. EVPs have also been collected with numerous voices of children telling investigators their age, laughing, and asking to play. Apparitions of children have not only been seen by the human eye, but have been captured in photographs, especially when taken outside of the building. In some of these photos, you can see a child peering out of one of the breezeway windows, another of a young girl in the garden, and a girl holding some type of toy or doll in her hand. Visitors who have gone up on the fifth floor, along with the roof, have heard many giggling children singing Ring Around the Rosie. Phantom smells are also quite frequent on the second floor near the kitchen. Scents of fresh baking bread, brownies, eggs, and bacon have all been inhaled by guests and even workers of Waverly Hills. Since the ovens have not worked for quite some time, these scents do seem to come out of nowhere. We do know that when the building was used as a sanatorium, 
Over 2,100 meals a day were made and given to patients. Rich, nutritious food was believed to be imperative for healing consumption, so cooking was happening at all hours of the day during its operation. Some have even witnessed the apparition of a cook in a white jacket coming in and out of the kitchen. In the late 1920s, a head nurse named Mary Hillenberg was found hanging from a light fixture outside of room 502. While many stories float around about the reason for her suicide, it is most commonly believed that she had gotten pregnant by a doctor out of wedlock, performed self-abortion, and then hung herself. She wouldn't be found until 12 hours later when the next nurse's shift started. Her apparition is believed to have been captured in a photograph by a paranormal investigator named Tom Halstead. When comparing the features of the apparition to a photograph of Mary, they are eerily similar. Unfortunately, this wasn't the only tragic event involving room 502. Only a few years later, a nurse who worked in the room fell five stories from the roof and died. Some believe it was a suicide, while many others think she was pushed. As visitors enter the room today, many women gain overwhelming nausea, the sensation only easing as they exit. Some have claimed to see the full-bodied apparition of one of the nurses and disembodied voices saying, get out. The final and most notable area we will discuss is the 500-foot tunnel that was originally designed to help cart supplies from the bottom of the hill to the top where the building sits. Sanatorium workers would also use the tunnel to access the main building during bad weather. Eventually, the tunnel was used to cart more than just supplies. As the death rate skyrocketed, around three people an hour would die in the sanatorium. Many workers worried that seeing the constant removal of bodies from the building would upset patients and ultimately hinder their ability to heal. Originally, bodies would be removed through the back of the building, which was easily visible to patients in the hospital. But when bodies started piling up, it was decided to start moving the deceased through the tunnel, down the hill, to be collected by loved ones, gaining its popular name, the body chute. Rumors have swirled that the sanatorium was overrun by deaths, so bodies had to be stored and stacked in a freezer until they could be removed. But before their removal, an autopsy needed to be performed for continued funding. Since it would have been impossible for all the bodies to be autopsied, most were taken to a back room, hung upside down, and drained of blood instead. No evidence has been found to support this theory, but just the idea of this can easily produce shivers up the spine. The tunnel is still accessible today during tours, with many claiming to experience heavy pressure after entering, sounds of screaming, apparitions, photo evidence of apparitions, numerous EVPs, and overwhelming feelings of dread. If you are interested in paying Waverly Hills Sanatorium a visit, a range of different experiences are offered, including a historical tour lasting two and a half hours, a six-hour paranormal investigation that runs from 12 a.m. to 6 a.m., a two-hour guided paranormal tour, and private paranormal investigations available on select evenings. To make reservations or to gain more information, you can visit their website, therealwaverlyhills.com. Hey everybody, it's time to go deeper and get creepier with Holly and Brittany. Hi guys. How are you doing this week? Doing pretty good. Going to Colorado uh, tomorrow, so I'm excited. That's how we're going to go see the uh, Stanley. How are you doing? 
I'm good. Um, just got back from Florida, and my husband and I scouted out a haunted location that we're going to talk about next episode, and it was a truly terrifying experience, um, but not in a paranormal way, unfortunately. Um, but I will talk about that. I will talk about our experience in the next episode. So, Waverly Hills Sanatorium. I blanked for a while because I was just typing up a whole bunch of stuff about the Mammoth Cave, so I was about to say that, but that's not what our episode was about. Um, so Waverly Hills Sanatorium, Brittany, you always get the good information, good, uh, interesting background information. I know that you have found some interesting stuff this week about Waverly Hills, so we are ready for you to share it when you are. So um, I was like, obviously, this has to be in a TV show. There's no way this place isn't. And it's in season 11 of Supernatural. I am a huge Supernatural fan. So that was kind of exciting. They only did the outside. So I guess it's them walking around. I haven't watched the episode yet because I want to like... I wanted to get all the facts before watching it, but it says they only walk around the outside and that all the inside was filmed somewhere else, but it's still cool that they shot a scene there. Mm-hmm. And then the style of the building, because we talked about this last time, this is a Tudor Gothic revival style. And when I looked up um, Tudor Gothic revival, a lot of the buildings that came up were kind of like cathedral-ish looking so I actually looked up what the Notre Dame is and it's French gothic style so it's not Mm -hmm. the same but they're both gothic but I thought it was cool that it has some remnants of that uh gothic style in it yeah the gargoyles yeah terrifying but yeah maybe unless you are so sick that you're hallucinating those those gargoyles don't come to life (laughs) Mm. That would be freaky. Yeah. And I definitely did not read anything about that in a, like a paranormal sense either. So yeah, unless you were so sick, you're hallucinating. But they stayed right there. Probably were. Oh yeah. I'm sure. Um, yeah. Very, very interesting facts and information. I know that the inside of Waverly Hills now is still like pretty run down. Um, one day I would like to obviously go take a tour of it. It sounds really cool. Just even for like a historical perspective, I have found reading about tuberculosis to be like so interesting. Um, and maybe I just am not as educated as the general public, but (laughs) I, I feel like so much of history, like it does, like it does talk about tuberculosis but it doesn't like I did I guess I just didn't know like for as long as it existed like how terrible it was yeah you know you hear about the plague and you hear about yellow fever and just all of these other massive illnesses that killed so many people but like tuberculosis killed so many people well you want to know what's crazy what 
at hospitals, they still test employees on a yearly basis for if you have TB or not. Yeah, I know. There are some hospitals, too, that, like, will not take patients um, that have had tuberculosis in the past. Mm-hmm. It's pretty um, crazy. Um, I, Our cousin, he told me this story a while ago, and I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to tell the story, so I won't even say his name. But if you're listening, you'll know it's you. Um, he was telling me that he had to like do a whole bunch of like do a checklist of like sicknesses he had had, um, because he goes and sells equipment in hospitals. And one of them, he checked off that he had had tuberculosis because he thought it was just like one of those common illnesses that you have as a child. Um, and they were like, not going to let him in the hospital because he checked it off. And he was like, what? And then his wife was like, you have never had tuberculosis. Like, <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Um, but turbo- <laughs> tuberculosis is not a laughing matter. So the illness itself no is, is not a laughing matter, but yes, it got so bad. Um, in the mid-1800s in Kentucky. And sanatoriums at the time, they did not exist yet. So, like, it was still just, like, even when sanatoriums existed, obviously there was not a treatment for tuberculosis, but they were really, really searching for something that they could try to do to kind of help all of these people out. Um, and a man by the name of Dr. John Krogan actually owned the Mammoth Caves in um, the mid-1800s. And he opened one of the first tuberculosis sanatoriums in 1842 inside the Mammoth Cave system. Um, and... This was actually almost two decades before the first official sanatorium was created Mm. in, I believe, Germany. So this was, like, way out there, not something that was, like, a common practice. Um, And basically, he just believed that the cave's low temperature year-round and the pure air could help cure those who were suffering with this disease. Um, and also people had been using caves to heal ailments since the beginning of time. For example, Epsom salts have been used since the 1600s to treat aches, pains, and wounds. And Mm -hmm. calcium carbonate, which is found commonly in caves, is the main ingredient in Tums and other stomach medications. Mm -hmm. So like this wasn't a wild theory, but obviously like there was no evidence that this was going to work. Um, and so originally Krogan, He, and before I get into it, Krogan was a Kentucky physician, so he was a doctor. Um, He wasn't just some random dude kind of coming up with this, but um, he wanted around 100 participants to join his cave sanatorium experiment, but only 10 people signed up. Um, And also during that time, it, it wasn't super popular to kind of like come out and be like, yes, I have tuberculosis. Like it was it was really looked down on having it because you really like could not interact with the rest of the world because it was so unbelievably contagious. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people weren't like really coming forward and saying that they had it, but, um, only 10 people signed up. And honestly, this was 
better for Krogan at the end of the day because the experiment definitely did not go as planned. So instead of having 100 victims, he only had 10. So in order to start the sanatorium, there were two stone cottages that were built inside the cave. And if you go and explore Mammoth Cave today, you can actually see some of the remnants of this of these cottages, which is pretty interesting. And the first two cottage stone cottages were built to be his office, and then the other was going to be used as a dining room. And then there are also 10 frame cottages built inside the cage. Cage. That was basically a cage. Um, inside of the caves for the participants to, like, house themselves in. So... Um, a big part of tuberculosis recovery is resting and definitely not doing anything that's going to like upset your body, make your body more tired. So they really had to only do like simple things in their free time. So one of the things they did was work on mapping out the cave system and to get light because obviously it was super dark. They used a variety of different oils to light the lamps. Um, and even though that they were super hopeful of being cured, life in the cave was harsh and honestly did more harm than good for these patients. The stoves that were used in the cave created smoke that made the patients coughing worse. And because it was very damp, their linens were constantly wet. Um, they needed to dry them. So they'd have to hang them over the fire, which ended up creating more smoke and due to the humidity in the cave, mold would grow all around them. So like inhaling the smoke, inhaling the mold obviously is not going to make any yeah. TB patient better. And the cave system was still like open for visitors. So I really didn't look into the history of Mammoth Cave too much. So I don't know when they started like allowing cavers to explore down there. Visitors of the cave system would go in and actually could like see their little cottages. Yeah. Well, that's what it was called too. It was called a little village down there, but they were so interested in these patients that, that they would actually like look in side of like, look through the windows of their little cottages. That's so rude. <laughs> yes. But the, um, the victims appearances were like so terrifying um, they had super sunken in eyes, skin that was so pale that it would have like a bloodless appearance and pupils were dilated so much that you could no longer see the irises of the eyes. And what, what does that sound like to you? Like what appearance does that sound like to you? I thought vampire. Oh. Oh, Very vampire-esque. Like, zombie, demon, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, vampire, that's so true. Yeah, and uh, uh, originally people did believe that consumption or tuberculosis like came from vampires because I think, I mean, obviously the irises of the eyes had that look because they had no sunlight. Um, mm -hmm. But I just think that that's interesting that they looked so much like vampires um, and they believed that vampires were what created this disease, even though it's been around since the beginning of time. So patients began pleading to Dr. Krogan to leave, but he would try to persuade them to stay and actually like say that he was going to move them deeper into the cave system, which only made it worse. Yeah. Um, so after five months, the experiment had officially failed with three parents 
parents, three patients dying inside of the cave. And um, it was abandoned. And many of the patients ended up dying only days after they left. And I mean, for the most part, like if you read about tuberculosis, especially in this time, like there was less than a 50% chance that you were even going to survive if you were deemed to have it. So this isn't like surprising numbers, but essentially it didn't work. Right. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And yeah, if you want to see, if you want to go to Louisville, 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 it's Louisville, I think. Louisville. Um, yeah, I'm sure residents of Louisville <laughs> going to think I'm definitely butchering the name. And I probably am. So it's Educate okay. People. I think it's just like hard to say if mm-hmm. you're not used to saying it. Kind of like New Orleans, Nolans, you know? Yeah. Um, I also feel like I sound stupid when I try to say it the way that everyone says it. Anyway, um yeah, so if you want to visit Waverly Hill Sanatorium, be such an awesome experience. And you can also go caving, Mammoth Caves, which is something I've always wanted to do before I even wanted to go to Waverly Hills. So, and then one more interesting fact that I read about that I did not get a whole lot of information on because it was hard to find. So, if you are a listener and you have more details of this that would be awesome if you would like to share it with us but this is definitely a creepier thing so when the um current owners actually bought the sanatorium it had been you know abandoned essentially and like pillaged through and had a bunch of people coming in and destroying things um but it was also believed that a devil-worshipping church, not to confuse with the satanic church. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but they're two different things. A devil-worshipping church had used the first floor as a place of sacrifice and worship to the man below. And um, they, (laughs) they found a... Um, they found the body of a homeless man and his dog with their eyes gouged out in the elevator, which is just very sad. So That is very sad. Who knows how many people were killed there after, after the Woodhaven nursing home was closed down that we know of, you know? Yeah, it's... Ugh. Yeah, I can't imagine finding that and, like... Because I don't have a lot of information on it. Like, I don't know how long it had been since he had been, like, in there. But um, could you imagine if you were just, like, a trespasser and you were just... that is literally my fear. That is my fear, that I'm going to stumble upon a dead body if I'm, like, trespassing somewhere. Like, that is always what I'm scared about. And you're like, am I about to be that person? You're in therapy for the rest of your life. Yeah. I've never seen a dead body, so. Well, they look scary. I'm sure. I'm sure they do. Yeah. I mean, I guess I have seen a dead body in a wake, but not the same thing. Not one that's just been. 
Yeah. Those have like makeup on them and stuff. Yeah. Now one that's been decomposing. Well, I've never seen a decomposing body. And I'm not weird. I've seen dead bodies in hospitals of patients who just recently died. I'm not like out there looking at dead bodies, everyone. Yeah. No. I know. Some people, that is their thing, isn't it? Um, Hey, as long as it's as as long as it's a healthy hobby, like you're not like doing weird stuff to these bodies, then you do you, you know, you do you. But yeah, that's basically all of the information that we have outside of the episode. I try to add as much information in the episode as I can. So sometimes finding extra interesting information can be difficult but I think we found a good bit um and I'm sure there's way more that we don't know if I know Waverly Hills is a super super popular place that is something is a place that a lot of people who like haunted places are interested in and have been to so I'm sure some of our listeners have been there um if there's anything interesting that we missed or that you want to share, just reach out to us at sisterstitious at gmail.com or send us a message on Instagram at sisterstitious. And yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So if you don't have anything else to share, Britt, we can sign off. I don't. I'm going to have to go to uh, sleep tonight thinking about that poor homeless guy and his dog. So thank you. Yes. Well, you know, I'm just here to share uh, the creepier information. That's the point. Um, and yes, next episode, we will talk all about our experiences at the Stanley Hotel and the Driscoll Hotel. And for our next episode, like I said, I think at the beginning of this, mm-hmm. the place that we're covering, I got to go to in real life. So that'll be fun, even though the experience of going itself was not that fun. <laughs> I don't think it would ever be fun. I don't know. Battle to get there? No. Yeah. Yeah. It was rough. And like I said, I'll explain that in a little bit. I mean, (laughs) next week. Um, I mean, not next week, the week after, whatever. Okay. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening to episode 12. We will catch you later. Yeah. Catch you later. Bye. This episode was produced, written, and edited by Holly Daniel and Brittany Murray. Cover art by Ben May. We want to thank you for listening to this production of Sister Sisters. This is Sisters. It's a bucket Halloween.